Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus this morning. Glad to be here in the worship that we've been having so far in the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit here. Appreciate that. Brother George, was, it was his turn to preach this morning, but he's still sick, so I'll be filling in for him. Several weeks ago, we looked at the heart of God toward his people and the truth that the Bible says his delight is in them. His delight is in her is the meaning of the name Hephzibah that we looked at. And I think we, I mentioned then that we want to explore the scriptures in the next messages, however the Lord leads, to um, and explore the scriptures together to better understand what God wants for his people today and his vision for the church. Sometimes we talk about, you know, or ask the question, or like, what is your vision for the church? Or what is my vision for the church? And it's probably profitable to have those discussions. But one thing that came to my mind very simply is, we should be asking the question, what is Christ's vision for the church? What it, it's his church. And I, we had looked about at that several weeks ago about you know many of the struggles in congregations and church life and, and the change that is happening even in society around us. I was reading this week an article that talked about how the churches in Europe are just emptying out. I think in Belgium, they're down to like 16% of what they were um, over the last number of years. I forget exactly the time frame. It's astounding. Churches are being turned into hotels. They're being turned into bars. They're being turned into other things. The buildings are being sold because there's nobody there. And, okay, that's in society. But then you look even in conservative churches and the struggles at times that are there, and there's questions that come to our minds. Two weeks ago, we looked at the title, What Angels Wish to Know. Quite a few of you were away on the Vancouver trip, and that was good. But we wanted to look in that, at that message to see the sacred privilege that we have today in living under the new covenant, which is really the background of understanding Christ's vision, Christ's will for the church. We looked at 1 Timothy 1 there, where it talks about the salvation which the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, as they wrote the Old Testament scriptures, were curious about the things that they were writing. They were, they were breathed into them by the Holy Spirit of God, the scriptures would say. And so they were curious, and they were told that this isn't for your time, this isn't for your generation, but you're writing things that are going to happen far down the road in the future. And so the prophets wondered about those things they were writing. That also, in that same scripture, it says that the angels desired also to look into those things, which is the salvation that, that God was bringing to the world. And so... You know, the question of that message was, you know, why are the angels curious? Why, what do they want to know? What, what are they curious about? I'm just going to re refer to a few things as in this part of the introduction before we move into the message today. But it seems that these verses, that in these verses, it's the plan of salvation. 
and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in, in, a, in a redeemed person, that that is what the angels are curious about. You know, where they see the holiness of God and the greatness of God and the majesty of God, and then they're watching how that God chooses to indwell these human people through his Holy Spirit. And the angels are curious how this can work and how God is going to do this. Of all the things in God's creation that angels see and know, we only see a small portion of the creation, but all that the angels see and know of God's creation, yet in, in, in the, in, it is the plan of salvation that attracts their inquisitive minds. And that's why I believe the scripture says they, they wish they could understand us or they desire to look into this. Of course, we know that angels never experience salvation. They don't know what redemption feels like. There's a song we sing sometimes. You know that when we sing redemption song, the angels will fold their wings because they never felt the joy that our salvation brings. And there's, there's truth in that because they're not, they don't know redemption as we know it. Now, the summary of that message what the angels predicted, sorry, what the prophets predicted but could not understand, what the angels wonder at but can never experience, you and I understand and experience it every single day. That shows, should show to us the very unique, the very privileged position that you and I stand in, in relation to salvation today. We are thus more blessed and more privileged than the prophets or the angels of all the working of God through all of, since eternity passed before the creation of the world, salvation was in the mind of God, in the part of that plan of salvation, in predestination, was a plan that you and I would be part of the family of God and brought in together. That the death of Christ would bring salvation to the Old Testament saints and provide salvation for the New Testament saints as whoever would come and experience that salvation. And so, so there you have that plan. We live in, the, in this time of prophetic fulfillment. All that God was doing for the centuries and millenniums past coming down to our day, our age, our time, and the fact that we are born now and we, have, we live in this time and we can experience this. Did you ever stop thinking how amazing that is? How unique that is? How precious it is? What a privilege it is? The angels don't know about it, don't understand it. They watch it happen, are curious. What I'm saying is, what the scripture is helping us understand is, I believe that we are privileged beyond anything that we, we can imagine. Do we really understand that? Do we thank God every day for the privilege of what he's done for us? All, and so Christ loves us so much, we could say, and forgives the penitent sinner that even the angels are amazed. Now, Jesus also promised that the gates of hell can never overcome his church. There's a security that you and I have as a Christian and a part of the family of God, a part of a Christian brotherhood, 
There's a security there that we can know we, fought, we battle in victory because the scriptures have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church will survive every attack that is placed against it. Now, in all of that, in that promise, we have to admit, but it can feel, because it feels to us sometimes that in many situations, the concept of the church isn't working out too well. And there can be hard experiences, there can be difficulties, there can be struggles that are a lot less than the ideal. And then we wonder, well, how does all this work? What is Christ's vision for us? What is Christ's vision for the church? And that's some of what led me to thinking of some of these thoughts, these messages. How can we avoid the catastrophe of, of, of division, the catastrophe of misunderstandings and, and all that can go with that? One man here in the valley told me quite a while back, that he had tried the whole church membership thing, but it never worked out for him. Never seemed to get along with others. Never seemed to work. So he's not part of any church. He just ministers and counsels people with help being a part of a church. Another pastor friend of mine lives far from here, but he got crosswise with a conservative church that he was a part of, and ended up leaving. Started a little house church. Um, different, it was different people attended for quite a while. That hasn't worked out either. Now, now they're down to just him and his wife. Recently, I heard sometimes they study the Sunday school lesson together on a Sunday morning. Sometimes he preaches. Just him and his wife. We as humans all tend to be very reactionary when we feel we've been wronged or hurt or taken advantage of or misunderstood. Those are our very human feelings. Well, I think we need to remember this morning that those very human feelings can take us far afield if we're not careful. Because of these issues and many others, for many other reasons, people come to wrong conclusions about the church as God designed it to be. And so when you look across the landscape of churches, we know in our hearts that God has said, Christ has said that I will build my church I already referred to the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then we can sometimes wonder, well, how is God building his church? And where is God building his church? And where is this? And what am I a part of? And where do I fit into all of this picture? I think never before in history has there been so many attempts to redefine, restructure, reinvent, and redesign the definition of the church. And that's because of the disillusionment of a lot of people. With the church under attack, the question is, what is the way forward? And so this morning, we, we could um, ask the, the question, what does Christ want us to understand 
And again, it doesn't matter what you think or what I think or other people think. Yes, we are a part of this. But what does Christ say to us? What does the scriptures teach us? And so we'd like to continue this, these thoughts this morning and just look at some of the, the principles of scripture and make some practical applications for us. I'd like to think this morning of Christ's plan for the church. Turn with me to Ephesians 3. You can't stay out of the book of Ephesians and talk about the church. Just, I looked at some of my old Bibles, I pulled one off the shelf last night. I don't preach out of it anymore. I preached out of it for many, many years. But uh, the book of Ephesians is well worn because I guess I must have used it a lot. Um, you just can't talk about the church without turning to Ephesians. Ephesians 3. I'd like to begin reading at verse 14, read down to verse 21. We're breaking in here. This is the prayer of Paul. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. First of all, who is the church? Who is the church? I remember sitting in, a in the back seat of a taxi many years ago in Vancouver, going from the, uh, the uh, airport to a hotel for the night, and I got to talking with this man about Christianity, about the scriptures, and he, um, he was uh, of a oriental, no, I should say Asian background probably. He said, well, I, I'm not sure about, you know, I said, I've read the Bible a little bit, but he said, I, everybody just has their own idea. So he said, I just kind of just leave it alone, he said, because he said, I don't really know what's right. And, and you think about that in relation to um, to many people taking that approach in relation to who is the church and who is right. And sometimes we can ponder this and say, well, finally, what, is it, what does church mean? What is, who is a part of the church? And when Jesus says, I will build my church, who is that? In the, in the literal sense, in, in my life, as it relates to your life or other people in the world. Now, look at verse, um, verse 15. It says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So here the church is, the family of Christ, the family of God, and it says those in heaven and those on earth. Christ's family, God's family, is now divided. There's family in heaven, and there's family on earth. The family in heaven is the Old Testament saints, of course, as well as those who have died in Christ. As Paul talks about, you know, those who already are asleep, that died in Christ, they are, as part of the family of God, they are in heaven. And so we have the, the family of God divided, 
Some of us are in heaven already, and right now we're still on earth. On earth, of course, is the people of God. Christ knows throughout, across the world, across the globe, who are sincerely serving him in obedience to his will. Those are his family alive on earth. All bearing the name of our Heavenly Father, says of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And that word name there in the original language has the idea that it's, it's bearing the name of your father, the family name. So I know the name Christian doesn't mean as much today because it's, it's abused and misrepresented so many times. But really, it's, you could say it is, the, the idea is that it would be um, the name. So belonging to God is belonging to Jesus Christ and bearing the name, the family name. Now, in the future, first, uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 10, in speaking of the family of God in heaven and on earth, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So there's a future time, Christ's vision, his goal for the church is, his plan for the church, and this will happen because hell, Hades, the devil will never overcome the church. There's going to be a time when God's going to put the whole family together. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up. The graves will be opened. The spirits of those who have departed will come back with Christ, be united with their bodies. As the graves open, we all meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, the Bible says. That's God putting, bringing his family all home, all back together. And that's a beautiful thought when you think about that. That's the anticipation of the future not only for Christ and the Father, but also for us, and to, to be able to share in that. Now, who is the church? I'll simply say it like this. Wherever there is a group of sincere blood-washed saints who seek to obey the power of Christ in truth, anywhere in the world, that is the church. We have some brethren going over here soon to Bangladesh. I know you hear me talk about Bangladesh. But they're probably going over. There's been baptisms. And at this point, it looks like the brethren there, they want to be formed together as an official congregation so they want to have communion together. There's the church. Here's the church. Other places where there's sincere people serving the Lord, there's the church. Across the world. God knows, Christ knows each one and understands that. They share the oneness of Christ together, like in 1 Corinthians 10, where it speaks there of all partakers of one bread, so they come together and share in the life of Christ. We could turn to Acts uh, 2 and verse 44 there, and it says, All that believed were together, and so to be in Christ is to be in harmony and communion in the life of his body, the church. Now, what about the teaching of the invisible body of Christ? This is a heresy, I believe. This is, and it is something that is very prevalent in Christian circles. It goes back all the way to the pietist movement of the early days of the Reformation. We're not going to go into all that history. It's a very fascinating history if you want to read that. And that is, in the pietistic movement, it was that they would say, well, my relationship was with God. And so instead of 
leaving the state church and facing the persecution like the Anabaptists did, they would just stay in the state church. Sometimes they were called half Anabaptists. And, and they were sympathetic to the Anabaptist movement, but they, didn't, they did not want to pay the price of persecution to leave the state church, so they just stayed there. And the belief system that, re, that came out of that was that my relationship with Christ is just between me and God, so it doesn't matter if I worship in any place with any people. That doesn't matter where I sit for Sunday morning or you know, worship service. I'm just communing with God you know, in my mind, in my spirit. And, and because I'm part of the body of Christ universal, or they called it the invisible body of Christ. And that's where that term came from, which also was then picked up by the Calvinistic movement, uh, John Calvin and others. And that's how they justified being a part of a, or being, as a, in a sense, a part of a church that was living in sin and allowed sin. They said, well, that's them. This is me. I have this relationship with God. And so what they do doesn't affect me in my relationship. And so that is uh, where that term uh, comes from, and it is still very prevalent today. And this false teaching is used to justify not being a part of a local body. Someone say, well, I'm a Christian, and no, I'm not part of any church. But, you know, they say, well, I'm part of the universal, the invisible body of Christ. It is true that there is the universal aspect of the church. I don't like to use the term invisible because of the baggage that goes with it and the heresy that goes with it. But there is the universal aspect of the church worldwide. You know, we talked about that all over the globe. There are sincere believers that are finding Christ and serving him together in their own way as the Spirit leads them in their growth and understanding to serve Christ. That's part of the universal body of Christ. And all of us can be a part of that in our sincere seeking of truth. But if you think about it in the New Testament con concept, there were Paul writing to the churches. We have, of course, the familiar one is in Revelation uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, where he wrote the letters to the churches of Asia. There were seven churches. All those seven churches were part of the body of Christ, but there were seven distinct churches in those areas. And so you have churches like Colossae and Philippi and Laodicea and Ephesus, and you go down the list. You know, and, and they ministered to those churches, and each of those were a part of the body of Christ. Now, I think it's important to remember that the Scriptures nowhere teach the concept of solitary Christians. Remember a man who had been a former member of the church years ago, another location, said to me one day, he said, show me a, 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 Bible, a Bible verse or a Scripture that says that I need to be a member of the church in order to be saved, to be a Christian. And I remember telling him that I, I can't do that because I'm not aware of any distinct verse that says you need to be part of, of, a, of a church to be saved. And he kind of got a gleam in his eye and said, well, yeah, that's, that's, I thought you weren't going to be able to answer that. I said, just wait a minute. You know why the Bible does not give us a verse that says that? because the Bible assumes it from cover to cover. The whole concept of the family of God and the solidarity part of that assumes that. The New Testament assumes that. And so we don't live in invisible bodies. The scriptures in relation to the church do not teach an invisible baptism. You don't have invisible communion. You don't have invisible ministers or pastors. Pastors. 
you know, that would be an, that's an impossibility. We live in, in, in our body, and so therefore, there will be a local body of believers. And so I think we need to be clear on that because it, I believe it is one of the deceptions of the last days, this belief in, in solitary Christians. Just three verses before we move on. Ephesians 2, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now listen, In whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That verse probably comes the closest of teaching that there's a bringing together. We're builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And that means that while we as a Christian possess the Holy Spirit of God individually, and we have that in conversion, he, come, he moves in, he cleanses our hearts as part of the new birth experience, we, we have that possession of the Holy Spirit. But that verse says that then those um, individuals that are, are spirit-filled are builded together for a habitation of God. And so God not only dwells us individually, he dwells us, he indwells us collectively. We are built together. We come together in a brotherhood in the, in the church, and there's an added dimension of the Holy Spirit in a brotherhood that you do not have as a solitary Christian. So that, that, that's an important one. Now, Matthew 8 and verse 11, Jesus said, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They're referring to the, uh, the whole aspect of that solidarity with all the saints of God, all brought together. Ephesians 1 and verse 10, I think I referred to this, but you know, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he's going to bring all together, those that are in heaven and those on earth, even in himself. Now, I'd like to move on. Christ wants us to see the glory of God in the church. It's the second thing we want to notice from this passage in verse 21. And it's probably, I think, one of the very important ones when you think about what Christ's view, Christ's vision for the church. Unto him be glory in the church. Unto him be glory in the church. This means, in the context of, the, of this chapter, this scripture, that the church is to be the instrument by which the glory of God would be on display for all to see. The glory of God would be on display. Have you ever seen the glory of Christ in the church? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. We sing a song sometimes. Can't think of the name of it right now, the title of it. I think the tune is called Hagerstown. I think it's where it's written, but there's a phrase in that song that almost always brings tears to my eyes. It says, Oft have I seen thy glory there and felt the power of cleansing blood. Have you ever seen the glory of God in the church, the glory of Christ in the church? It's a question that it's good for us to think about. 
Are we veiling that glory somehow? Are we like Moses putting a veil over our face? He had to do that because his face was so shining bright that Israel people, his Jews, his Israel, they couldn't, couldn't look at him. He just like, so he put a veil over his face because he had been in the presence of God there on the mountain. Is it our humanity that veils the glory of God in the church? We've seen enough church struggles and problems, all of us probably at times. But what does Christ want us to see? He wants us to see his glory. Unto him be glory in the church. How can we see the glory of God in the church? A few thoughts. And this is not ex extensive or exclusive. If we follow our human instincts, I believe, and you probably know this from experience as well, that we will only see a lot of really struggling, faulty human beings. Isn't that often the tendency for us? In our humanity, we know what we don't like. We can see the hypocrites. We can do this and we see that and the other thing. And, and we just don't see the glory of Christ. And many people stumble over the humanness of the church. And this is hard to explain. And I have to admit that I struggled with this message. I struggled with it last week. And then at the last minute, I went to something else to share. And I came back to it this week, and I struggled all day yesterday with it. I don't guess it's the humanness of it. Have you ever stumbled over the humanness of the church? I have. But think of it this way. God didn't make the church out of angels. He didn't form it out of angels. He formed it out of Sinners that were redeemed by his blood. He formed the church out of people that are all different in personalities. He formed the church out of people that struggle at times to find his will and submit to his will. He formed the church out of, out of people that don't always understand each other and but that's what, what who he chose for the church so the church was established with very very human people and therein lies i believe the stumbling block for a lot of people and sometimes us we expect the church to be ideal, right? People that just always love each other and always get along. There's just never differences, and we all see eye to eye, and we just always agree. And 
And I'm not saying that's a bad ideal to have. But how do we reconcile that with the reality of what it takes in, in church life? And I guess the question that haunts me is, are, are we missing something? In the next couple messages, Lord willing, I plan to look at some of those things. I want to look at a few more this morning yet. Just remember this. Who did Christ choose for his apostles? Who did he choose as the 12 men that were going to be the foundation of the New, of the New Testament church? You go to Revelation, you have the, the, the city, the New Jerusalem, and the foundations were the 12 tribes of Israel, so you have the Jews, and then you have the 12 apostles. And the church is built upon the foundation of the 12 apostles. And you think about Christ establishing his church, and, and who did he pick for the foundation for his church? 12 men. What kind of men were they? I'm afraid sometimes, I don't know how you feel, and you probably heard me say this before, but I'm afraid sometimes if I had been standing there and watching Jesus, realizing at the time, like they did not probably understand, that he's choosing these men to be the foundation of the New Testament church, and I would have looked at them and said, Christ, what are you thinking? Peter, Thomas, Paul, that blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he just, I'm afraid we would have shaken our heads and said, I don't think this is going to work. The same as sometimes we look at people maybe on the street, say in Vancouver or somewhere, and we, we see someone and we say, I just don't know how they're going to. Can they really find Christ? But that's who, who Christ chose. It was a deliberate choice. It, it was a divine choice. We read over what became of their lives and what they've done, and we admire it. Because of the work that Christ did in their hearts. I would like to just say this. It's probably, again, if you don't remember much else from this message, remember this. How can we see the glory of God in the church? It's very simple. If we are going to see the glory of Christ in the church today, we need to take our eyes off ourselves and focus on the Lord of the church. The problems, the struggles, the difficulties, the whatever you call it, in relation to church life today, I think boils down to this, this very simple truth. That too often, we have our eyes on ourselves, or someone has their eye on themselves, instead of on focusing on the, the lordship of, of Jesus Christ and the head of the church and the fact that it belongs to him and it is his body. We can be so selfish, even in our concept of the church. And I think I said this a few weeks ago, but you know, there's a tendency for all of us to want to customize the church to fit me, to fit my ideas, to fit what, you know, what I want. 
and what I think I need. And people do that, you know, nominal churches, you know, these big mega churches, you know, and they have all this entertainment program and, and the music and all that goes with it. And they're somehow offering that, trying to offer that to, to the God of heaven. And you wonder how often do they stop to think that maybe that's not what God wants. That's not a sacrifice that, that fits him. And God says, I, I don't even want that. Like the Old Testament saints there sometimes in apostasy, they would bring these sacrifices that were, were less than what God required and they were full of blemishes and they were second rate. And God said, take it away. I, I don't want that. And so it comes back to, to the sincerity of our own hearts and whether or not we understand the whole nature of the church and what Christ wants. Otherwise, it could be so much about what the church does for me or does not do for me versus is what God, through Christ, wants me to be in his body, the church. Now, it doesn't take any spirituality to be critical of the faults and shortcomings of others. John Wesley one time, or a lady one time in one of his churches told John Wesley that one of her gifts in the church is to, to um, understand what other people do wrong. And he, he said, um, well, I would say that you need to get converted and, and get that out of, out of your, your head, something along that line, because that's not a gift of the Spirit. It doesn't take any spirituality to be critical of the faults and shortcomings of others. People can accuse the church with broad strokes of the brush as being unspiritual or hypocritical or, you know, you go down the, the list. One thing that really struck me recently, in relation to Revelation 12, where it talks about the, the devil, the great red dragon there, and it says there that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them before God day and night. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. We are not to have accusations towards each other. We are called to just go discuss our concern with that brother or sister. You see, an accusation is when something is laid or is a charge that is laid or this, you know, I'm accusing you or you're accusing me and, and you know, and it's like, you know, not actually going out of the heart of concern and sharing it, but it's an accusation. So an accusation is not a genuine concern. It's just saying, this is what I think you're guilty of. End of story. That's what the devil does. The church has always been under attack with accusations hurled against her. But let's be sure that we are not one of those who, like the devil, hurl accusations against God's people. Are we human in the church? Yes. Can we work on things? Yes. Are there weaknesses that we should help each other with? Yes. But do we believe that God is here? Do we believe that God is at work? 
that we belong to Jesus Christ. And we are in this stage of life in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb, whereas the book of Ephesians says that he is, he is working to purify and to wash us with the water of his word, to cleanse us. Christ is in the business of getting his church ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're in that stage. We're in the preparation stage. Is that going to be a little painful sometimes? Is that going to be, take some discipline? Yes. But that is a part of it. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. I'd like to think a little bit now about supernatural love. To see the glory of God in the church, we see the supernatural love. Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We are to love each other the way Christ loved us. Do you think we're done exploring that yet? Do you think we're done? We've, we, we have arrived at that yet? Think that God wants to still keep working that into our hearts and lives and chastising us to love each other the way Christ loved us? I would say, brethren and sisters, we got a ways to go yet. Let's not give up. Christ is working to perfect us. John 17, 26, he's praying to the Father. I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So there Jesus is praying that the love that the Father had toward Christ, his Son, that that love would be in us. That's supernatural love. And as we exalt in that, we work in that, we, we operate in that realm in close brotherhood, that's why we can work together as close as we should be. Maybe we need to work on that too. We'll talk about that another time. But, you know, being worked together closer in the brotherhood that's the only, the, the only way you can do that is with supernatural love. We can't generate that humanly. And that's why I think sometimes churches just disintegrate or fly apart, you know, and it's like, well, the supernatural love is lost and you're trying to somehow come up with some sort of a human level of love. And it, it is, it's not enough to make it to the finish line. It, it, it's not enough. It doesn't work. So according to this scripture, you know, when churches fail or when churches struggle, when people can't get along, there is the, the supernatural love of Christ is missing. We have to say that. It's missing somewhere. It also means that we love each other as, uh, as much as if someone... Sorry, it also means that we love each other so much that if someone comes to share a concern that I will choose to see past their humanity or that you can say the humanity of their approach or the way they word it, which sometimes isn't very good. You know, we struggle with the way they approach us or whatever it is, but we see past that humanity to see the work of God, the work of Christ, and to choose to see their love for me. And that's why they came to talk to me about, about whatever concern it is. And so we have that aspect of humanity. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians as earthen vessels, you know, we live in these earthen vessels. This is that humanity, but he did it on purpose. He, or, he, he chose to put his power in these earthen vessels. Well, 
just says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the light of Christ, the, whole, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We, we hold that treasure, that spiritual treasure of God, the presence of God within us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. God, and that's why I think, go back to what the angels wish they understood, how that God can put his presence in in such a human person. And how can he do that? But here it says that God did it on purpose. He put that treasure in these earthen vessels, this humanity. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That means when people see us and they say, oh, you're good people. I, I struggle knowing always what to say when, when they say that. God is good. It's the, it's the power of Christ within us. Otherwise, I'm just as evil and as bad as anyone else out in the world. But for the cleansing and dwelling spirit of God within my heart. He chose to put that power, that glory, in earthen vessels. There's a supernatural forgiveness. How often have you and I needed the forgiveness of Christ? How often have you and I needed to extend the forgiveness of Christ? That's why the Bible says that if we don't forgive, we're not forgiven. Do we appreciate and do we, we rejoice in the supernatural forgiveness of Christ? Not only of him forgiving us, but even much more that we can see the glory of supernatural forgiveness in the church. And I know many of you sitting here this morning understand that and know that personally. Not only in redemption, but also in interpersonal relationships, the supernatural forgiveness. I'm going to give a personal illustration. I don't often do this. And I asked Brother John last night whether I could do this. Many years ago, I'm not sure how many years ago, but there were some difficulties and some struggles with deep feelings between two brothers in the church. It was myself and Brother John Dick here. But I would like to say, and I think about this various times, while I don't remember even all the details, I don't know if I could remember all the things that had become issues between us. I'd prefer not to go back and try to re refresh that memory anyway. But what I often think about is, in seeing Brother John when I come into church or when I meet him, I think about the miracle of forgiveness. And what that relationship, how that relationship is now in being restored and we're better friends than ever. Just an illustration. I'm sure you could probably think of illustrations. Supernatural forgiveness. Is that the glory of Christ in the church? I think it is. I could not have done it. Brother John could not have done it. Many of you, if you've experienced something like that, you couldn't have done it without the supernatural forgiveness of Christ. Do we see that as a glory of Christ in the church? How do, you, how do we show the glory of, of the church to our families? 
going to run out of time. How do we see the glory of the church or show the glory of church of the church to our families? And I know this is a real burden on the hearts of us as parents and grandparents. But I especially want to encourage you as young parents here this morning. Looking on and seeing and, and knowing the challenges of raising a young family today. And the question of how can I bring my children to know Christ? And what does this have to do with seeing the glory of Christ in the church? To hold to his claim, you know, that they, they can, the children can, can know Christ and hold to his claim in their lives. To, to be able to grasp that. It's like share a few thoughts in closing. First of all, show them the glory of God in the church. Show them the glory of God in the church. I believe in today's world, no, I'll back up, I'll say it differently. We've always needed the church in family life. But there was a time in previous generations where they only got to church once a month. There were no prayer meetings. There was no Christian schools. It was a whole different society they lived in. We look at that and say, how, that, how could that ever work in today's world? Probably won't work. Today, with the society and the pressures, the influences that are upon us, we as families, as fathers and mothers, need the body of Christ, need the church more than ever. But I'm not sure, and this is part of the burden of this message, I'm not sure that we have grasped it all yet. And I don't say that critically. I'm saying that as reaching forward to those things which are before. Psalm 48, 12, Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwarks, Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. That's Old Testament, but that's like take your child and walk around the city of Jerusalem and walk around the temple and point out all the significant things that made up their identity as an Israelite, as a Jew, as they come up over the, the, the rise. You know, we can read the uh, Psalms of Ascent as they were coming up toward Jerusalem. And they came over the brow of the hill there and they could see it in all its glory you know, the temple there. And he says, tell it to your children. Point out the bulwarks, all the details. Show it to them. It was glorious. It was, it was, it was great. They loved the city of Jerusalem. And you think about that today in relation to the church. We need to show our children the glory of the church. Show, them, show to them the triumphs of the gospel today whether locally and the work of, in, in people's lives and hearts and the changes that can happen, show to them what's happening around the world. I enjoy looking at the CAM newsletter that comes. It's just one little um, window into what is happening in so many places across the world today and where the people of God are serving and people are finding Christ. You know, the letters from Ukraine, you know, the, the people that are finding Christ, that's a triumph of the gospel that's the glory of Christ. And we need to be teaching our children, showing our children that. Teach them the glorious history of the stories of God's people. 
You know, almost every little town and city in, in Canada has this monument set up. And with all the names of the, uh, those who died in battle, usually World War I, World War II, maybe the Korean War. But, and those monuments are, stand there, and a lot of times they say at the top, you know, it's the glorious dead. Okay, that's carnal warfare, that's patriot, uh, patriotic ideas and all of that. The church has its glorious dead. Hebrews 11 would be an illustration of that. Hebrews of faith, we call them. But there's many more than that. And I really strongly believe that part of teaching our children, helping them to understand and have a high vision for the church of Christ today is to teach them the glorious history of the church. Not just, we have it in the Old Testament stories, really good. You teach them those. We have them in, in church history. We have the stories of the martyrs. We should be teaching our children those stories of the martyrs, the Anabaptists, the ones who faithfully stood in their, in their time. And, and they, they are, you could say, the glorious dead. Those who witness to us today, the faithful that have gone on, who are encouraging us forward in the fight. That is a part, I believe, of helping us to understand the glory of Christ in the church. Show them the glory of Christ in the brothers' and sisters' lives. You know, the local congregation, you know, sometimes we don't realize what that person was saved from, and we, don't, we should not go into all the details of a past life. I'm not talking about that. But the fact that this is what I was, or this is what he was, or she was, before they found Christ. And look at the power of Christ now. I know of situations, not only here, but other places, that you know you can go to church and you meet them or visiting other congregations. And a lot of people don't know the spiritual journey that person was on and how far they came in that spiritual journey. That's the glory of Christ in the church. And our children need to understand that and, and, to, and, and, and be taught that and shown that. Show them the glory of Christ in spiritual worship together. You know, you know the, and Jeff talked about this in, in the devotion, and I appreciated that. It's sort of the same idea. But, you know, our children will know if dad and mom are enthused about going to church for worship or if it's kind of a burden. You know, and, you know, I just almost wish that there'd be some reason that we didn't have to go. I just, it's a very practical thing, but it's a way in which we communicate you know, the importance of, of worship, the importance of being together. And as Hebrews says, in the last days, so much more as you see the day approaching. It's going to take more of this and more involvement and a closer relationship in Christian brotherhood. And I think we need to teach and show how we feel about the glory of Christ in the church by our involvement. We may refer to that later. I'm going to look at one more and then we're going to close. Pick this up another time. We show the glory of Christ in the church by Christ-honoring marriage relationships on display to our children. The scriptures clearly teach that Christian marriage is a type of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. The greatest gift, the greatest spiritual gift you can give to your children 
is to model that relationship of Christ and the church to your children in your own marriage. If we want our children to see the glory of Christ in the church, they should see it modeled in how we as husband and wife relate to each other. Are we always perfect in everything? No. But let's not cut ourselves too much slack. A husband, the husband has the type of Christ in a loving spiritual leadership role. Loving as Christ loved, the Bible says, his wife. Treating her always with respect and love, cherishing her. As we say in a wedding vow, we promise to cherish. The wife as a type of the bride of Christ with respect, submission, loyalty to her husband. It means a man, a father, a husband in his place, and a wife, a mother in the home, a type of Christ, or a type of the church in her place. This will be a powerful spiritual testimony to your children about the true nature of the church. It's a challenge for us. Churches are finally made up of homes. And homes are the background, are the backbone of the church, as we say. They're the strength of any congregation. Let's be sure, brothers and sisters, we are doing that the way Christ wants us to. That's showing to them, teaching them, the glory of Christ in his bride, the church. We're going to close with that. Lord willing, next time we want to look at few further points in relation to this. But may God help us this morning to have a right view of the church. I'm humbled, and I think we all should be. When you think about God in eternity past thought all of this up and planned it all. Shouldn't we take it pretty serious? If we think about our place, our responsibility, it should humble us. It should make us want to explore more of what God wants for us in his body, the church. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you that you predestinated that we could be part of your church family, that as we found salvation, we be part of a local body of believers. Father, we pray that you would help us to clearly understand these truths. So many of these truths are being lost today in so many people's lives. Father, we just pray we would humbly seek to serve you in faithfulness and allow your Holy Spirit to direct us each step of the way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us. May you continue to help us to know and to serve, to experience your truth within each of us. Pray for those who were not able to be here with us this morning. Pray for them. 
You will bless them and give healing according to your will. And may we each be faithful. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.